Take your Bible, turn over to Psalm 92. We're finishing up a short series in the book Psalms, Emotions in God. I just finished a, a book similar to that, God and His Emotions. And uh, I liken the Psalms to getting a wonderful tenderized steak. And you know what it's like when you get a steak cooked just the way you want it? You cut into it, you savor each bite. You think about the tenderness of it and all the juices that are in it. And you take your time and you just enjoy going through it. And I liken the Psalms to that as well. I usually preach one Psalm a year around uh, Thanksgiving, the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And that's why I thought it would be good to start off this year looking at emotions and God and how we as humans deal with the wide range of feelings God has created within us. And the book of Psalms is interesting because they're all basically standalone, but you can go through and connect some of them together into basic themes if you would like. And I strongly encourage you for your mental health and spiritual growth to do some in-depth study on the book of Psalms and the different ones. And as this year ahead of me, I'm going through, I read Psalm 35 today, I'm going through the book of Psalms, probably you will go through at least twice in a year if you do one chapter a day. It'll help you understand your emotions, how to respond directly to God about those feelings that are fully human, since we're made in his image and God has emotions, but his emotions are perfect in balance because of his holiness and because of his perfection. And some of that is revealed in this Psalm. Just as a reminder, the twofold purpose of all the 150 Psalms, first of all, to give all Christ followers a window into Israel's faith at the time of their writing. Also, the Psalms are man's healthy conversation with God and God's responses to man's perspective on life. It's interesting you read those Psalms and it kind of redirects the psalmist thinking because God is revealing how he's supposed to deal with his emotions and the direction he needs to go. There's different types of Psalms. We talked about praise. Two weeks ago, we looked at a praise psalm. Thanksgiving, this, this is a, a, a Thanksgiving psalm, a psalm of him. And then lament. A couple weeks ago, we looked at a lament and then a precatory. Um, and then wisdom, royal, kingly enthronement, and pilgrimage. We haven't looked at those, and we're going to move on away from the study and not look at those. But those are the general categories of the 150 different psalms. Psalm 92, as I said, is a psalm of thanksgiving. And so I encourage you, if you have your Bible, turn it open. Psalm 92, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to read the entire chapter, and you follow along as I read. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, To the melody of the lyre, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they're doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. 
but you've exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You've poured over me fresh oil. Verse 11, my eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Verse 13, they are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They're ever full of sap and green and to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you and as we sang a few minutes ago, help us to rid ourselves of ourselves, Lord, and look to the cross and come with humility and set aside our pride and help us to have open hearts as we hear your word today. It's a way to praise and worship you, but it's also a way for us to be challenged to make us more into the image of Jesus Christ. And so Lord, as we focus on this thought of thanksgiving, fill us with hearts of gratitude today. We pray and ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, subtitle to this psalm, and you'll see it in your Bibles, is a psalm for the Sabbath. It's a psalm of weekly praise since the Sabbath comes at the end of the week. We do not know who wrote this psalm. The tradition of how they used this psalm was taken from the Mishnah. It was sung by the Levite priest during the time after the second temple was built at the time of the daily offerings offered on the Sabbath day as they gathered for worship. This is the only psalm that uses the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. It's the English transliteration of the Hebrew letters representing Yahweh. And you'll see the definition of a tetragrammaton, a big, big word there for you. Yahweh, named for the God of the Israelites, representing the biblical pronunciation of Y-H-W-H. The Hebrew name revealed to Moses in the burning bush. In the book of Exodus, in the name Yahweh, consisting of the sequence of Hebrew consonants. If you study Hebrew, you realize that there's no vowels and that the context tells you what the interpretation of these uh, words are. And so that's what Yahweh is. And so Yahweh is used seven times in the psalm and seven represents perfection and completion. And if I remember my study right, this is the only psalm that uses Yahweh within it. The theme of this psalm is God's steadfast love his blessing and favor on the righteous, his judgment on the evildoers. Notice the bookends of the psalm here. The psalmist begins in verse two with declare or proclaim in some of your translations. <clears throat> then when you get to verse 15, he closes out using that same word, declare, to say forth. So let's look at our first point this morning. I encourage you to take out your outlines and <clears throat> fill in these blanks. We remember more if we do that, then if we merely listen. So I encourage you to do that. So the first thing we see here is thankful for the works of God on behalf of the righteous. Thankful for the works of God on behalf of the righteous. The righteous praise God, first of all, through music. And isn't it great? I am just so thankful each week for the faithfulness of those on our worship team. And uh, week after week, they bring, they bring us tremendous music and bring us into the very presence of God. And that's what this psalm is talking about. 
Look at verses 1 through 3. It says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. Literally, if you were to take this in the order of the Hebrew words, it says, Good is to give thanks unto Jehovah. It is good, it's appropriate or fitting to thank God because of who he is. He is so worthy of our praise. You see three things in these first five verses of Psalm 92. Praise, make music, and declare and proclaim God's goodness. We give thanks not based on any merit we have, but because of God's loving kindness bestowed on us, beginning at salvation and continuing daily in our lives into eternity. Notice the phrase there, almost high, El Elyon. It means our God is exalted above all. He is the one true God who has proven himself for all time, reflected in the life, the teachings, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, especially that special revelation. In verse two, it talks about thanking God for his steadfast, enduring, and faithful love toward us. It's interesting the use of the word mourning here. Mourning, praise and thanksgiving is very beneficial to us as humans as we start our day. When we do that in the morning, we thank God for preserving you through the night, giving you rest, which your body and your mind so desperately needs. We thank God for waking up in the morning, and it's symbolic of new life, a new day in front of you. We thank God in the morning because it gets our mood and our attitude in the right frame of mind to serve God however he leads us. It promotes cheerfulness at the beginning of our day, and it sets the tone, hopefully, for what we're going to face throughout the day. A website called keepabreast.org said, here's some benefits of a thankful heart. One, you get better sleep. Two, have a higher self-esteem. If you have a grateful heart, it improves your physical and your mental health. Gratitude can help us through the most traumatic situations in our life, things that happen to us. And then it also improves how we relate to people. If we come and approach them with a thankful, grateful hearts. God mentions his faithfulness at night. Night is the calm of the day after work. Night is a time for reflection. As a result of that reflection, we can be thankful for the things of the day. We close out our day in the evening reminding ourselves of God's daily mercy and grace toward us. And so we, God's gracious love toward us is given to us by grace. You know, it tells us in Romans 5.2 that it is on that grace that we stand. That grace that God has bestowed on us. That grace that brought us to salvation. But it's that grace that we stand on in this life and in the life to come because we didn't deserve anything. God gave us the things that we need, the tender mercies and the love. And so when we thank God because of his grace given to us, we are bringing honor and glory to him. In verse three, the psalmist moves beyond words to music to show his gratitude toward God. At the night offerings of the Sabbath worship, the Levitical singers led the people with musical instruments in worship. The ten-stringed harp or lyre is mentioned here in the lute as well. So I did a little study. If you look through the Old Testament, here are the instruments that you hear about or see that were used 
at temple worship and other places in their culture at that time. First of all, the percussion. They had a timbrel, which was a tambourine with a wood frame with skin over it. Cymbal, two bronze plates, provided a clanging sound. Wind instruments, the horn, it provided a few different sounds used to announce the coronation of a king or celebrate Jehovah's rule and reign. An example is found in Psalm 98, verse 6. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Blowing trumpet was a call for the assembly of the people, some kind of convocation. It could be for worship. It could be for a coronation of a king. Other times, a horn was blown. A trumpet was blasted to gather the armies together to go to battle. Also in the Old Testament, you see a flute or a pipe, commonly used in Egypt, but also in Israeli worship, but more often than not used in secular music celebration. And then it talks about stringed instruments, the lute. The lute was originally an Arabic instrument. It resembled a guitar, though with a longer and more slender neck. The harp, the lyre, curved rectangular instrument, often with 10 strings on it. All sorts of instruments used to accompany singers to praise God. Martin Luther, the reformer, talked about how important music is for the believer. He says, I'm not ashamed to confess publicly that next to theology, there's no art, which is the equal of music, for she alone, speaking of music, after theology can do what otherwise only theology can accomplish, namely quiet and cheer up the soul of man, which is clear evidence that the devil, the originator of depressing worries and troubled thoughts, flees from the voice of music just as he flees from the words of theology, end of quote. So even Martin Luther saw the important value of music and praising God. And then second under this point, the righteous praise God by declaring his works. The righteous praise God by declaring his works. Look at verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 92. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work at the works of your hands. I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. Notice there in verse 4, made me glad. Singing about the completion of a week, much like God's completion of creation in six days. And then God set the example by taking off the seventh day and calling it the Sabbath the humans needed a day of rest, of reflection, of worship. Isn't it a good feeling that after a week of productive work or for our students, our kids, our teenagers, a productive week of study that you can sit back and relax? Declare here, see, in these verses means to confess, to make known, to report, to tell plainly with certainty and authority. The acts of God are not to be separated from his attributes, or the essence of who he is. In this case, God's steadfast love and faithfulness is stated in verse two. The works of God are merely demonstrations, expressions of who he is. A verse I partially quoted during our communion meditation, Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. That word show means to demonstrate. He didn't just say he loved us, but he put his arms out and was nailed to the cross. His feet were nailed to the cross, and he died for us to demonstrate because of the essence of who he is, that God is love. 
In Psalm 89, it says, For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations, Selah. God made the covenant back in Genesis 13 and 15. But then you see throughout scripture, he works, he acts, he moves. He allows it to happen. And one day, Jesus Christ, who is an ancestor of David, will rule and reign forever and ever on his throne. God is a God of action, of putting his words and his nature on display for all to see and for us to give him glory. Notice it says in these verses, the works of his hands the works of his hands, mighty acts of deliverance. We can list numerous ones. Their deliverance out of Egypt, their deliverance from Assyrian captivity and Babylonian captivity. Sennacherib tried to destroy them and was turned back. Just to name a few of God's works displayed through his hands, his work on our behalf. In his novel, J. Burke Crow, the Kentucky farmer and writer Wendell Berry has his character J. Bar talk about the quiet work of God's guidance in our lives. And I quote, often I have not known where I was going until I was already there. I've had my share of desires and goals, but my life has come to me or I have gone to it mainly by way of mistakes and surprises Often I've received better than I deserved. Often my faintest hopes have rested on bad mistakes. I'm an ignorant pilgrim crossing a dark valley. And yet for a long time, looking back, I've been unable to shake off the feeling that I have been led. Make of that what you will. Can you look back in your life? Can you see evidences of God working along the way? Of him leading you to where you are today? of bringing people into your life to make you who you are now. This is God's working personally in our lives. And then at the end of verse five, the psalmist says, your thoughts, God, are very deep. This was a weekly hymn intended to recharge spiritually and emotionally and remind them as they sang that life is a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. And God reveals his mighty works and how incomprehensible he is. In Romans chapter 11, verse 33, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! Verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? In Isaiah 55, you're very familiar, most of you, with these verses in verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Here's our first application today to apply to your life. Are you daily thanking God for his works found in your life? I encourage you to have a gratitude journal, to write these things down that God does in your life so you can go back and reflect and thank God for what he's done, that when you're going through difficult times, you can go back and reflect on what God has done in the past and remember that he's either going to deliver you from the current storm or he's going to walk through this storm with you. Second, thankful for God's judgment on evildoers. Thankful for God's judgment on evildoers. The life of evildoers ends suddenly at death. We often don't think about that. 
in our humanity. We see people cutting corners, cheating, doing all kinds of things to get power and prestige. But we need to remember what will be the end of, for them if they don't receive Christ as their Savior. It says in Psalm 92, verse 6, The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they're doomed to destruction forever. Skip down to verse 9. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You see the two contrasting responses to God's work in human history. Here you read about the fool responding by rejecting God's redemption. Later on in this chapter, a couple verses down, we're going to see the wise respond by following God and accepting his redemption. But back in verse 6, that word stupid means fool, useless, senseless. In verse 7, we see the wicked sprout up and flourish for a short while. Like grass that gets green in the spring, in the early summer, as the spring rains come, but then you get to the middle of summer and the heat comes and the rain dries up, the grass burns and is destroyed in many cases. And so it is for these evildoers. The wicked man does not have common sense. He begins and ends with himself. He has no morality. He has seared his conscience. He's insensitive to God. And even when he gains wealth and power and prestige, it will be short-lived. When he dies, it will all be left to someone else. People will eventually forget his name. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Solomon, who was the wisest king who ever lived at that time, who had everything, wisdom, wealth, power, prestige, he said this in Ecclesiastes 5.15, As he came into his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. You don't see U-Hauls on the back of hearses when you go to funerals. Verse 16, this is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. It's all about building up his name. It's all about having wealth and power. And guess what? It's left to somebody else. I think about a song by Casting Crowns called Legacy. And in the first verse, it says, make it count, leave a mark, build a name for yourself, dream your dreams, chase your heart above all else, make a name the world remembers, but Jesus is the only name to remember. And I love the chorus. And it says, and I, I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me, only Jesus. And I, if I've got one life to live, I'll tell every Second, I'll every second point to him, only Jesus. Think about that. What do you want people to remember you as you're eulogized at your funeral, as the epitaph is written on your tombstone? We see also the life with God is eternal. The contrast here, but, in verse 8, the life with God is eternal. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. Notice the but here showing contrast to the short-lived, here-today-gone-tomorrow wicked man. God is eternal. He's instilling in his Christ followers an eternal perspective that we take the long view as we look at our lives and we make decisions. He reigns in absolute supreme authority. 
And because of the psalmist's conviction that the Lord is the ultimate ruler and judge, the psalmist lifts up his voice in song as a praise to the Lord, and he praises God for taking down the wicked. Let's look at verse 9 again. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. God allows the wicked to flourish for a period of time with the hopes that they will repent and turn away from their sin and come to the cross of Christ and receive the gospel, realizing they're a sinner, realizing they're in need of a savior, that they need to ask for forgiveness of their sin, ask Christ to come into their heart and to be their personal savior and to lead them, put him on as Lord of their life, lead them through the rest of their lives. In Romans 2.4, I love the fact that God doesn't force anybody to receive him. It's always an opportunity that people have to avail themselves of and come to God on his terms. In Romans 2.4, or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Second Peter 3.9 says that God is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Think about God's patience when the world was wicked and Noah built that ark for 120 years. He had 120 years of grace for those people to turn and repent before judgment. We see God's steadfast display of love to soften the human heart, to lead it to repentance if the person responds to it. And if the wicked do not repent, they're headed for eternal destruction. Verse nine, if you look at it, is like a hymn. For behold your enemies. The next stanza, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. The last stanza, all evildoers shall be scattered. Behold is repeated here in that verse for emphasis on how the psalmist is talking about and emphasizing the destruction of the wicked. He says the wicked will be scattered like an army being routed by the enemy. They're in disarray, discouraged and demoralized as they run for their lives. The application here is, do you see the downside of disobeying God? Do you see the consequences? And help those who are younger here really grasp a hold of that. The importance of being faithful, persevering, and following after God. We live in a world, sad to say, and it grieves my heart every day as I see this more and more, that we live in a world where the consequences for wrongdoing are being taken away. And so the idea is we want to remove all guilt. We don't want to make anybody to feel bad. And that's because God has set it up for natural consequences to occur when we sin and go against his will. Roe versus Wade, federal Supreme Court, you know, shut it down federally. It's up to each state. But now some places are figuring out how to send abortion pills into the privacy of your home and trying to do that wherever you live. And it just shows you, shows you that we want to move away from consequences. Our last point is that we should be thankful for God's continual blessing on the righteous. We should be thankful for God's continual blessing on the righteous. The righteous will flourish. Look at verses uh, 10 through 14. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You've poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Verse 12, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. 
They're planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green, the signs of vibrancy in life. Notice there in verse 10, exalted the psalmist's horn. It's symbolic of strength and power found in his salvation. Fresh oil, it's anointing. It's fresh oil, divine blessing poured out on the righteous. And then he tells us in verse 11 that we see and we hear the downfall of the wicked, the destruction of them. The psalmist expresses his joy because God is perfect in his justice and he's a holy God. The psalmist rejoices in verse 15 that evil is destined to cease once and for all when he, we see the new heaven and the new earth come about. In verse 12, we see the example used of a palm tree and a cedar tree to describe the righteous. These trees represent prosperity and a life of happiness. These trees represent a picture of life that's filled with good fruit, good health, and vibrancy. In Isaiah 65, verse 22, it says, For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. There's a great promise to hold on to. God wants to bless us. God wants to bless the fruit of our labors as we do our best to be obedient and to follow him. In verse 13, it says, They're planted in the house of the Lord symbolizing the nearness of God to his followers. To put this in modern day application, it stresses here the importance of being in God's church because that's where we gather together in corporate worship. That's where salvation not always occurs, but sometimes occurs in the church. Baptism, communion as we celebrated today, discipleship, Maturity are all part of the process of being with other believers, iron, sharpening iron. And that's the picture here with the trees in the courts of God. In old age, they bear fruit. They're vibrant. They're healthy in their walk with Jesus. God's favor rests on the righteous to the end of their life. I love this verse. David wrote Psalm 37. He said this, I have been young and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. If we're living for God, if we're trying to follow him, not that we're perfect, <clears throat> we'll only be sinlessly perfect when we get to heaven, have our new body and the sin nature eradicated from us. But as we're obedient, as we're trying to meditate on his word and obey it, God says that we will be provided for, that he will take care of us. Psalm 1.3 said that God is like a tree or the, the righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. We were reminded a few months ago by one of the men in our men's group that when a tree produces fruit, it's not for the tree, it's for others to pick and to enjoy. And so the fruit that we provide through the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.22, is not only for our benefit, but for the benefit of of others around us. And then we see the righteous declare God's righteousness. We're to declare it. We're to proclaim it. We're to tell people. Declare God's righteousness. Look at verse 15 as we close out this psalm today. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Declare means to say forth that the Lord is righteous. 
This verse is the summary of the purpose of this psalm. It circles back to verses one and two and creates a bookend to this psalm. His works reflect God's perfection. Notice he describes God as a rock. And the idea of the rock there is to rely on God for sustenance. That means the supply of resources that we need physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually to live. And also that God is our stability. That we can put our confidence on the rock. God does not disappoint his followers. Notice the end of verse 15. There is no unrighteousness in him. God is the friend of the righteous. God can be trusted and is so worthy of our trust. One of the commentaries that I used to study for this message, Barnes notes, the author said this, what would the universe be if God, a being of infinite power, were not a being of perfect righteousness and could not be trusted by the creatures which he has made? I want you to look at this screen, and here's a Chinese character. This is so amazing, if you think about it. You see this Chinese character? And if you look closely, you can see there's one character on top of another. You see where that line is kind of in the middle? The one on top of the other. Separately, they mean lamb and me. But it's composed of two separate characters, and they put the lamb on top of me. And when lamb is placed directly above me, a new character, righteousness. This is the character for righteousness in Chinese. This is a helpful picture of the grace of God between me, the sinner, and God, the Holy One. There's placed between God and me, the very Lamb of God that we put our faith in. And by virtue of the Lamb of God's sacrifice, Jesus, he has received me on the ground of faith and I've become righteous in his sight. God gave us the righteousness of Christ at our salvation when he took our sin and gave us his righteousness. That is a picture of the lamb over me, making us righteous before God. Here's our application. Are you recognizing God's continual blessings on your life? Are you recognizing? Are you mentally thinking through your day at the end of the day or whenever? And you look back and you see the fingerprints of God on your day, things that he has done, people you've needed to have a conversation with that you came in contact with. I've had two such encounters this week. It was amazing. I went to go get some hot chocolate somewhere and it turned into a spiritual conversation in a parking lot of four degrees. And we prayed together. But so many times you look back and you see God leads you into these very specific situations. Effie Marsh, she was an English pastor. And he listed a few things off as we close, as we think about thankfulness and our attitude toward God. God's blessings, an acceptance that can never be questioned, Ephesians 1. God's blessing, an inheritance that can never be lost in 1 Peter 1. A deliverance that can never be excelled in 2 Corinthians 1. A grace that can never be limited in 2 Corinthians 12. A hope that can never be disappointed in Hebrews 6. A bounty that can never be withdrawn in Colossians chapter 3. A joy that need never be diminished in John 15. A nearness to God that can never be reversed in Ephesians 2. A peace that can never be disturbed in John 15. And then a righteousness that can never be tarnished in 2 Corinthians 5. A salvation that can never be canceled in Hebrews 5. So here's our key thought. Nothing to fill in there but a verse of scripture. 
Psalm 84.1, no good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. A good verse to think about as we close out this psalm. Here's some questions to think about this week, to ponder, to pray about, to consider applying this message to your life. Are you starting your day with a grateful heart? Do you wake up in the morning before you make your coffee? Maybe even before you get out of bed, do you thank God that you're able to wake up, that you're going to be vertical and be able to eat and walk on planet Earth for another day? That's just a basic thing that we can thank God for. Second of all, can you write down specific works that God has done in your life in the last days, in the last week, in the last month? And thirdly, are you able to thank God for lessons learned from past trials and tribulations? Those are very, very important. Those are the building blocks to build the confidence to strengthen your faith for whatever God has in front of us that we don't know because of uncertain times. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for the variety of hymns that we call the Psalms that are given to us in this book with 150 of them. Lord, each one should be something that we study, that we savor, that we take the deep truths out of and apply to our heart. I know for myself, so many times I read through them very quickly. But man, when you dig down deep, you see the heart of the psalmist and the heart of God revealed. And we thank you for that. And we pray that you will help us uh, to, this week, lift you up, to start our days with grateful hearts, to maybe start a journal of writing down the things that we can be thankful for, that we learn how to appreciate you more and learn how to praise you because of who you are and what you've done in our lives and what you're doing in the lives around us. Lord, you are, all at, work. You are at work all around us. We just have to be available and teachable for you to lead us to where you want us to go. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.